welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot as she called us to live to a higher standard each day. As this podcast series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. We continue today our extended series on Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. Today we feature Glad Tidings episode 93, A Glad Obedience, and 94, Missionaries Meeting Stone Age People. Have you ever heard the voice of Jim Elliot? You may have heard some of his famous quotes. You may have admired him from afar, but maybe you've never heard his voice. Well, today you'll hear the voice, uh, about a minute actually, of Jim speaking directly to those that have not yet trusted in Christ as Savior. Later we'll hear from Samantha Lagoy, a caregiver for Elizabeth in her last years. She'll talk about when she first heard about the death of Jim Elliot. First, though, that glad obedience episode. We go back to Christmas 1955. So we're nearing the countdown toward the commencement of Operation Alka an attempt by five missionaries to make an entrance to a remote, savage killer tribe. But the gospel was for them, too. On New Year's Day of 1956, what was Elizabeth thinking? In only a few days, Jim would be leaving to make contact. Elizabeth and Valerie originally were planning to go, too. Well, I don't need to tell you all about it. Stay with us right now. It's a glad obedience. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about a glad obedience. Operation Alka was nearing the countdown by Christmas of 1955. Operation Alka was an attempt on the part of five American missionary men in Ecuador, South America, to make an entrance into a tribe from which no one had ever come back out. The Aucas, A-U-C-A, a people known to be savages. They killed strangers. They were Stone Age people. They wore no clothes. But God loved them, and we knew that the gospel needed to be taken to them someday. Somebody had to do it, and Jim and Nate and Pete and Ed and Raj had volunteered to do that job. On New Year's Day of 1956, Ed McCulley and his wife Mary Lou and their two little boys and the Flemings, Pete and Olive, were with us on our station in Shandia. Jim was expecting to leave on January the 3rd for Operation Alka, and after the McCulleys and the Flemings had left, I thought, well, we'll have a couple of days, just the two of us, plus our little baby, who was only 10 months old then. We'll have a chance to talk more, to pray, to prepare ourselves for what we thought might be as much as two or three weeks apart. And, of course, in the back of the minds of each of us was the possibility that this would be our last couple of days together. I was thinking the usual things that a wife would think under those circumstances. What can we do that would be special to celebrate these couple of days together? I wished with all my heart that I were going along, 
The original plan had been for me to go with Jim in a dugout canoe taking our baby down the rivers into Alca territory. The thought was that if a man came in with his wife and baby, even the most savage people would not imagine that he was coming with any hostile intentions. But then that plan, Plan A, was changed to Plan B, in which no women were participating, just five men were going to go. Anyway, January 3rd was departure date, we thought. And so I had all my plans laid for the things which we would do between New Year's Day and then. And suddenly, on New Year's Day, Nate called us on the radio to say, tomorrow is the day that I'm coming to pick up Jim, so get ready. Well, there had to be a lot of excitement and throwing things into Indian carrying nets. Jim got his harmonica, a snake bite kit, a flashlight, a viewmaster with slides, thinking that that might entertain the Indians, a yo-yo, his language notebook, whatever else he could think of that he might need or that might amuse them. And what if he doesn't come back, I was thinking. What am I going to do in this jungle station? I knew that I didn't need to trouble myself about thoughts like that. Jesus has said, take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow will take thought for the things of itself. There was a last packing and a last lunch, and then the plane came in. Jim was ready. He grabbed the Indian carrying net, opened the door, slammed it shut, swung down the path with his usual big, strong stride. I looked back at the door. I thought, does he realize he might never slam that door again? But I didn't say it. In Nate's diary, he wrote about what happened that night. He was in Arahuno, Ed and Mary Lou McCulley's station, the place which was the closest jumping-off point for Alca territory. I drowsed off quite soon, but was checking the luminous face of my watch dial at 12.30, again at 2, and from then on I was on horizontal listening post guard duty. I prayed, tried repeating verses from memory, and even counting. My entire share in this business seemed to hinge on that first takeoff and landing. Then, too, I had told the fellows that I would only take one in alone on the first trip. That meant a lonely vigil for someone. Raj was ruled out because he spoke only Hivero. Ed had already beat Jim by pulling straws, but Jim held out, claiming to be lighter. When I said a difference of 15 pounds would be decisive, they dragged out the bathroom scales. Ed was only seven pounds heavier than Jim. Why, you cotton picker, said Jim, you've lost weight. Nate's diary went on. If I should misjudge, Ed and I would really be in a fix. Well, he woke up that morning, had the radio contact at 7 o'clock, went out and checked the plane, and the five men met together for prayer. They sang a favorite hymn, We Rest on Thee to the tune of Finlandia. Jim and Ed had sung this hymn since college days and knew the verses by heart. On the last verse, their voices rang out with real conviction. We rest on thee, our shield, and our defender, thine is the battle. Thine shall be the praise when passing through the gates of pearly splendor. Victors, we rest with thee through endless days. 
Nate tells about his first landing with a passenger. I had planned three runs before landing, but the thing was exactly as we had seen it several times before. As we came in the second time, we slipped down between the trees in a steep slide. It felt good as we made the last turn and came to the sand, so I set it down. The right wheel hit within six feet of the water and the left ten feet later. As the weight settled on the wheels, I felt it was soft sand. Too late to back out now. I hugged the stick back and waited. One softer spot and we'd have been on our nose, maybe our back. It never came. We jumped out, rejoicing in the deliverance. The relief at being past that hurdle without damage dampened my sensitivity to the glaring possibility that I might not be able to take off. It was great just to be there. They were very tricky landings, and Nate made three more with Jim and Raj and Pete. When Jim got in, then Nate flew in the pieces of the treehouse, which Jim had prefabricated at our station. The men set to work quickly, setting the treehouse up, nailing the boards, and the next morning, January the 4th, Jim wrote me a letter. Just worked up a sweat on the hand crank of the radio. Nobody is reading us, but we read all the morning contacts clearly. We had a good night with a coffee and sandwich break at 2 a.m. Didn't set a watch last night as we really feel cozy and secure 35 feet off the ground in our little bunks. The beach is good for landings, but too soft for takeoffs. We have three alternatives. One, wait for the sun to harden it up and sit until a stiff breeze makes a takeoff possible. Two, go make a strip in Terminal City. Terminal City was the nickname the men had given to the Alka village. Number three, walk out. Our hopes are up, but no signs of the neighbors yet. Neighbors was their code name that they used on the radio for the Alkas. Perhaps today is the day the Alkas will be reached. It was a fight getting this hut up, but it sure is worth it to be up off the ground. We're going down now, pistols, gifts, novelties, and prayer in our hearts. The next morning was Thursday. Nate saw some footprints from the plane, which looked as though they were headed in the direction of the missionaries' camp. A machete, which they had left as a gift on a distant beach, seemed to be gone. They went down by foot from their camp and found that the footprints were not new ones and the machete was not gone but only hidden by a leaf. They were disappointed, of course. They went back to their beach shelter, the flies, the gnats, and the heat. They spent part of the day shouting out the few Alka phrases that they had learned toward the jungle across the river, hoping that somebody was there, somebody might be listening and might appear. They had their notebooks. They made notes of everything that was going on. Jim went fishing, caught himself a 15-inch catfish, and made a stew in the pressure cooker. Then as Nate flew over the Alka village, he saw a man kneeling on a platform, which they seemed to have built for the plane, pointing at the campsite as Nate flew over. They know where we are, Nate said. He was elated. And then he wrote in his diary, the engine skipped a beat over Terminal City. Spark plug trouble. A man was kneeling on the platform toward the direction of the campsite and pointing with both hands. 
This really gave us a boost. We hurried back and glided down over camp, shouting the news. They signaled okay, and we hit for home. At Atahuno, we circled a couple of times, shouting a welcome to anyone who might be in the bush, then landed. After landing, Pete and I walked the airstrip with a gift machete. No soap. We find we have a friendlier feeling for these fellows all the time. We must not let that lead us to carelessness. It is no small thing to try to bridge between 20th century and the Stone Age. God help us to take care. Everyone is in bed and asleep here now, so it is left to me to go down the path and shut off the diesel. My little blank revolver is a welcome companion on such a venture. But safety is of the Lord. May we see them soon. Good night. And so their obedience was a glad one. They were ordinary guys with an eternal perspective, doing what they thought God wanted them to do. A yo-yo and a harmonica, huh? Well, that was A Glad Obedience, uh, Gateway to Joy, Program 93. As I mentioned earlier, we'll be hearing from one of Elizabeth's caregivers in her last days. But right now, it's time to hear from Jim Elliott. Uh, not just to read his words or hear somebody say his words, but to hear his own voice. Uh, he'll be speaking directly to those that have not trusted in Jesus as Savior. And that very same sure promise of David that was given to Christ is given to you, extended through the Apostle Paul and the great Word of God. Oh, will you not receive tonight some of the blessings that come from Christ's work in that he raised from the dead and now sits at God's right hand forever incorruptible, forever eternal, forever glorious, the great, high, mighty majesty that he is. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon his brow, and tonight he extends to you the grace of incorruption. He extends to you the offer of immortality in that body which he will perfect, in which he will make himself known. Will you but submit to him tonight? Yea, for has not the scripture said that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose? For whom he foreknew, then he foreordained to become conformed to the image of his Son. And if his son is incorruptible, then there is incorruption for you. Because I live, you shall live also. Yes, the voice of Jim Elliott himself, uh, just over a minute there, will feature more in upcoming podcasts from Jim himself. Right now, it's about time to get to our second Gateway to Joy broadcast for this podcast. Uh, to remind you that we'll be hearing from Samantha Lagoy and how she first heard about the death of Jim, about submission, about Elizabeth going to live with the Alcas. Samantha was one of the caregivers for Elizabeth in her last days. Right now, though, Gateway to Joy 94, missionaries meeting Stone Age people. Go back to 1956. Think about how the missionary men were vocally bombarding the jungle in hopes that any hiding Alcas would come out. Well, Three of them did appear. We've been telling the story of Through Gates of Splendor, the first book that I ever wrote about five American missionaries, one of whom was my husband, Jim Elliott. They attempted in 1956 to reach an unreached people called Alka Indians in South America. These people had never heard the gospel, had never been contacted, 
by anyone who came back alive. On Friday, January the 6th, 1989, at about 11 o'clock in the morning, Nate and Pete were sitting in a small cooking shelter that they had built on the sand of the Kurarai River. Ed McCauley was at the upper end of the beach, Raj was in the center, Jim at the lower end, continuing their verbal bombardments of the jungle. You remember that they had learned a very few Alka phrases from a young woman who had left her tribe years before, and they were using these phrases, which they hoped sounded friendly, in the hopes that if there were any Alkas hiding in the jungle, they would hear them and come out in a friendly way. At 11.15, their hearts jumped when a clear masculine voice boomed out from across the river, answering Ed's call. Immediately, three Alkas stepped out into the open. They were a young man and two women, one about 30 years of age, the other a girl of about 16, naked except for strings tied around the waist, wrists, and thighs, and large wooden plugs in distended earlobes. The missionaries, temporarily struck dumb by the surprise appearance, finally managed to shout simultaneously in Alka, Boinani, welcome. The Alka man replied with a verbal flood, pointing frequently to the girl. The missionaries, of course, understood not a single syllable of what he said, but his gestures seemed plain enough. He must be offering her for trade, said Pete, or maybe as a gift. When it seemed that the Alcas were waiting for somebody to come across, my husband, Jim Elliott, peeled down to his shorts and began wading across the river toward them. The other men said, Take it easy, buddy. You don't know what's on their minds. Jim hesitated, and the Alcas were slightly hesitant, but as Jim gradually approached, the girl edged toward the water and stepped off a log. The man and the other woman followed shortly. Jim grabbed their hands and led them across the river. Contact with Alcas. Can you imagine the thrill that after years of praying for the Alcas and after months of preparing for this contact, Jim actually took the hand of an Alca. The Alcas' uneasiness seemed to fall from them and they began jabbering happily to themselves and to the men with apparently no idea that the men couldn't understand a word they said. When the men prayed with their heads up toward their Heavenly Father, the Alcas looked completely baffled, of course. Their guns were hidden, but their cameras were visible. The Alcas seemed to have no fear whatsoever of the cameras, and the girl was interested in Time magazine, which Nate Saint had been reading as he lay up to his neck in the river just before their appearance. They gave them insect repellent. They nicknamed the man George, not having any idea what his name was, and George put the repellent on his arms and legs. He seemed to have no fear whatsoever. The most unequivocal sign of his acceptance of the missionaries' friendship and their trustworthiness was his willingness to get into the plane and actually take a flight with Nate over his own territory. In the book of Ezekiel, we read, The word was in my bones as a living fire. It really was torture for the men not to be able to speak a word 
that these three Indians could understand. It was far from clear as to whether the few words that they thought they had been pronouncing correctly were understood. But their friendship seemed to be understood. They gave the Indians rubber bands, yo-yos, balloons, lemonade, even a hamburger with mustard on it, and a demonstration of how to build an airstrip. They stuck some sticks up into the ground, took their little balsa wood model airplane, and zoomed it down toward the sticks and showed how if the plane hit the sticks, then it would turn over, hoping that the Indians would get the idea that they needed to build an airstrip so that the plane could land near their houses. Then, finally, Nate and Pete left because it was getting on toward sunset and they needed to get back to Arahuno. They took with them the film from the cameras with the pictures of the three alcas that the men had taken that afternoon. And shortly after Nate's departure, the man and the younger of the two women left, George and Delilah, as they had nicknamed them. But the third woman, the older one, decided to stay. There she sat in the little cooking shack that the men had set on the beach. She seemed perfectly at ease, and when they went up to spend the night in their little treehouse, she was still there. Saturday morning, January the 7th, 1956, was an anticlimax. Surely, the men had thought, the Alcas will go back and tell their people that the white man is friendly, and then maybe they will come and actually lead us to their houses. When the men had gotten up in the morning, the ashes of the fire were still warm, but the older woman had left sometime during the night. Nate flew over the Alka houses. He saw that the people appeared to be fearful. He wondered if maybe the three had not come back, and the people thought that the missionaries had killed them. But then, very quickly, there were friendly signs again, but not exactly exuberant. He was a little bit disturbed. Then he saw George, the man whom he had had contact with the day before on the beach. George was smiling. Then Ed McCulley wrote a note to Mary Lou that afternoon. Dearest baby, it's 4.30 and no sign of our visitors yet, but we believe they'll arrive, if not tonight, then early tomorrow. Thanks for the clothes and food again. We are certainly eating well. This has been a well-fed operation from start to end. I should put in a parenthesis here that Mary Lou was cooking up a storm back there in Atahuno, and every morning when Pete and Nate flew back to their camp, they flew with a plane full of food, sometimes a hot stew, sometimes warm muffins, even ice cream and ice cubes. Ed's letter goes on. We feel now that we ought to press going over there and get the airstrip in as fast as possible, but we'll have to wait and see how God leads us, and them too. Looks like Pete will be there to help you tomorrow morning. Give Stevie and Mikey my love and tell them I'll see them soon, and Carmela too. Carmela was their Indian helper. All for now, all my love, Ed. Nate was worried about the Alka's response. Were they bored? Were they fed up with these strangers? Jim reassured him. He said, that's Indian. If you landed him on the moon, he'd be satisfied in five minutes. He might be bored. George had been up in the plane, but didn't seem to have much to say about it, didn't even seem very excited. 
Well, that's Indian. If you land them on the moon, they're satisfied in five minutes. Then Sunday morning, January the 8th, Pete said when he left Arahuno, so long, girls, pray. I believe today's the day. The girls he was referring to were Mary Lou, Ed's wife, and Barbara Udarian, Raj's wife, who were staying together in Arahuno. So long, girls, pray. I believe today's the day. They took ice cream, warm blueberry muffins with them. They made a flight over the Alcas on their way in and saw only women and children. They got excited about that. By the time they had landed on the beach where the other three men were, they were exuberant. They must be on their way. We just saw ten Alcas headed in the direction of the beach. This is it, guys, Nate said. They're on their way. You can imagine the excitement with which the wives received this news by shortwave radio. Ten Alcas headed in the direction of the missionaries' camp. Lord bless them. Lord preserve them. Lord make it friendly. Lord make it the entrance for your gospel. Nate called in and said, We'll talk to you at 4.30 this afternoon. Be sure to switch on the radio. We expect a meeting with the neighbors at 4.30. So our prayers continued to ascend during that afternoon. I was the only one of the five women who did not know what this contact was all about because I had not been in Shalmetta. I was in my own station, and I was only in on a few of the contacts because of the secret nature of the operation. Each of these radio contacts had had to be in code and we were trying to keep as low a profile as possible. So I remember that afternoon I was down on the Napo River with my little daughter Valerie, who was just crawling at that point. She hadn't yet learned to walk, but she was crawling around on the sand, and we were just having a happy time with some of the Indians, wondering what was going on with the men down on the Kurarai River. So they shouted welcome. Well, that was Missionaries Meeting Stone Age People, Gateway to Joy 94. And let me remind you that uh, you can visit us at elizabethelliot.org for a lot of resources, so don't miss that. Right now, though, let's hear from Samantha Lagoy, one of the caretakers for Elizabeth in Elizabeth's last days. She'll talk about when she first heard about the death of Jim Elliot, about the topic of submission, about Elizabeth going to live with the Alcas, here's Samantha Lagoy. I'm not quite sure when I first remember hearing about Jim and the other missionaries, but I remember I was fairly young at the time and just the impression that it left upon my heart and my life, and even to this day, just the willingness that they were willing to listen to the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding to go and try to reach a tribe who was unreached with the gospel because they loved Christ and the kingdom of heaven so much and the gospel so much. And they loved these people knowing that without Christ, they would be lost for eternity. And also to see Elizabeth's willingness to say yes to Christ and say, I am willing to go and share the gospel with this tribe who just murdered my husband if that is what you're going to require of me. And although Elizabeth will have said in her, um, in her own words that she never thought 
that God would require her to go back. But she was still willing to be obedient and willing to go. And because of that willingness and her sacrifice of being willing to go and, sh- and to love the very people that murdered her husband, to look beyond and be willing to forgive them and to see them through Christ's eyes, they came to faith. They accepted the gospel. They accepted what Christ had done on the cross for them. And they were saved. And I always think, at what price are we willing to pay for the gospel? Is there a price too great for the gospel? Will we see people through Christ's eyes that even the very people that murder our husbands, we are able to look and say, I forgive you and I love you and share the gospel with them that they too might find life? Are we willing to see things through Christ's eyes? He saw the whole picture. He saw the beautiful tapestry that he was creating and how he was going to take a tragic situation, an incredible situation, and turn it into a beautiful tapestry for his glory, for his kingdom, for his praise. Are we willing to be tools in his hands, even at such a cost? And can we honestly say it's such a cost when Christ himself laid down his life for our sakes so that we could be forgiven and live in eternity with him? At what price are we willing to be obedient? Are we willing to further the, the gospel? Life is too precious to hold it to oneself. Are we willing to share the gospel with another that they too might find the freedom, the love, and the forgiveness that Christ offers each one of us? Samantha Lagoy, one of the caretakers in Elizabeth's last days. Well, it looks as though our podcast is just about at an end. Hey, thanks for letting us come into your home to join you wherever you happen to be. Maybe you're out jogging or at the office. Wherever we found you, it's good to have you a part of our podcast each week. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, check out all the resources available at elizabethelliott.org. Elizabeth, by the way, spelled with an S, elizabethelliott.org. Until next time, may God remind you daily you are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms.